and welcome to episode number three of the Parenting Wid podcast. Today I'm super excited to share my conversation that I had with Bethany Cunningham, owner of Mindfulness in Me. Bethany is a wife, mother, and mindfulness educator. She is a certified mindfulness meditation teacher and has practiced mindfulness since 2001. She has a bachelor's degree in psychology from St. Michael's College and a background in education. Her current work includes bringing mindfulness in the schools and teaching mindfulness parenting classes in the community. She specializes in helping others learn mindful communication skills, as well as how to manage stress and difficult emotions. I can't wait to share my conversation that I had with Bethany, as I know it really changed the way I look at things and how I approach my parenting. I hope you enjoy today's show. All right. Thank you, Bethany, for joining us today. We're super excited to have you. So before we get into all of our questions, I wanted to first give you some time to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, well, my name, like you said, is Bethany Cunningham. I, um, I teach mindfulness. I started teaching it in schools and slowly migrated into um, working with parents and individuals um, corporations, anybody that really is interested in learning skills and strategies to help create a little bit more presence in their life and kind of settle down all of the extraneous variables that they have going on that they're juggling. And I can kind of get into that um, a little bit later. But I really never saw myself as a teacher. I honestly still am reluctant to say that because I know so many teachers and they do so many incredible, amazing things. Um, But I think on the flip side of that, what's equally true is that as a parent, you are a teacher just organically and very naturally. Um, And I began this practice when I was pregnant with my oldest child, who is now 17, he'll be 18 in July, and really used it very um, rigorously and and heavily meditative practice um, through my pregnancy. And then you know, he showed up and there was very little time for that to continue. And, um, and I kind of let that practice, that formal practice go to the wayside. And it really wasn't until my second child was older and in fourth grade that I really started seeing kind of the application to use it in other ways, other than just for my own personal practice. Um, and it has kind of become a journey for me that I really, um, I make a lot of mistakes and I fail frequently and I use all of those experiences in my classes, whether I'm working with with young students or old students or adults. Um, And that shared experience really has become such an incredible journey for me. And I'm so grateful to be able to do this work and, and that people trust me to kind of come to me with their own issues and circumstances and situations and, um, it's just a really wonderful, blissful experience, um, even through the most more challenging moments with it. So, um, yeah, so I teach mindfulness. That's my superpower. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's great. And uh, it's so true that we, we learn through our mistakes. And I believe that we learn through other people's mistakes as well. So there's one question that I like to ask all of our guests, which is, What is one thing you swore you would never do as a parent and yet you've done it? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's this human experience, right? Where we have this idea in our head and we think we're going to just be really great at this one thing. And and children throw a lot of curveballs at us in that realm. So I would say that there are several um, things that I never thought I would do. But I think that the one thing that comes to mind was really my, my daughter has been probably one of the more challenging um, experiences I've had. And I really was convinced that, you know, as before I had children, that I would, you know, be this really great parent and setting, you know, a really solid structure and routine and, and not deviate from that. And she definitely has, she has a way, and I will say she still does this. And I catch myself frequently, like, what, how did that just happen? she has a way of getting her way. And even when it is not in the best interest of everyone else in the family, and it has created a certain amount of kind of um, discord at times among the family, 
but she's really good at it. And so there's a part of me that kind of watches her manipulate and maneuver. And I'm, there's a part of me that's kind of proud of her that she really does assert herself. She'd be an amazing salesperson. But what I find in that is I will engage in the argument and it will escalate and it will escalate until I'm losing my temper and she's already kind of lost her temper and we're both exploding. And it's so unhelpful. It's just not helpful. <laughs> Nobody wins from that experience. And I never thought that I would allow like a small person to get me to that level. I just never envisioned it. Um, but they do because you're tired. You're a parent, you know, like you've got a million other things on your plate. Um, and so, yeah, I lose my cool a lot more frequently, particularly with her um, than I would care to admit. Um, but I also have found kind of some kind of lovely solutions to that and ways to recover for both of us to kind of understand how we can better communicate together. She's now a teenager, so we've had many years to work through that together at this point. Um, but it is something like that, that yelling piece was never something I really loved to engage in. And I find that I have, I have resorted to that at times when it's just my, my, world has been swirling so much and then she's coming at me with something that either was unexpected or an absolute no and she knew it going in but she was ready to kind of put the battle gloves on and go to town with it and she did this as you know young as toddler toddlerhood so oh yes I can yeah. see the writing on the wall with my second child as yeah. well <laughs> you know you have those moments where you resign yourself after the fact too that was not my best mom moment right. <laughs> And it happens, you know, it happens. It's, and I, I feel like the recovery piece is really the learning opportunity from it. And certainly as we've gone on and the stakes get a little higher as they get older with how far they're willing to take that um, consistency of my message and really staying present with my state of mind and noticing the stress building for me has, has allowed me to kind of really navigate that very differently. Yeah. Yeah. You said you had uh, some great solutions for when this happens. Tell me what, what is one solution that you found works really well? Well, I mean, it all takes practice because particularly with mindfulness, there's always, um, there are always strategies to just remain present and, um, and keep yourself with your prefrontal cortex, that thinking part of your brain engaged. Um, so there are points when always, my first class, always the homework or the assignment for people to try um, is to take a breath before you respond to anything. And recognize in that moment, do you need more than one breath? Do you need to take a few minutes? And so that presence of mind in really identifying your state of mind before you address your child um, really has been kind of the pivotal piece for me as a parent, especially, you know, with that particular dynamic I just mentioned. Um, and also, you know, my other child has anxiety. And so also recognizing, am I responding to the behavior or am I responding to my discomfort with it? And so kind of understanding how the stress in my body works, noticing those signs and symptoms that I have when I get stressed. I get really tense. My breathing gets a little more shallow. I get really impatient. And so kind of taking that breath allows me to check in and say, okay, am I going to respond or am I going to react in this moment? And if, if the answer is I'm going to react, then I need to take a little more space um, and, and talk about that with my child. And even at a really young age, I would say, you know what, I need a minute to kind of figure out how I should respond to this because I'm, I'm not really certain now. Um, has made a huge difference in my, my children even kind of understanding my space and understanding theirs because I've modeled kind of when to notice and how to notice it. Um, and I, I will even speak that out loud. Like, you know, my, I feel really, my head might hurt a little bit. I'm tightening my jaw, my, my fists are clenching and just giving them those visual cues, especially for little people when they're little learners, kind of identifying the body signal um, has been a huge benefit for me as a parent and also for other parents that I've taught. Um, just recognizing what your state of mind is. Are you tuning into them or are you able to say, stay really solid and present for yourself before you go ahead and respond to what is happening? Great, great. So we've, we've all heard the term mindfulness before as it seems like it's one of those new buzzwords. But tell us, what does mindfulness mean to you and how does that translate to parenting? 
Yeah, so mindfulness, as it's kind of generally defined, it, it just is defined as paying attention on purpose and without judgment. So you're paying attention to something that's happening right here and right now and not wishing it to be different. And that non-judgmental piece really comes from a place of exercising um, an objective awareness to your surroundings in a given moment. So even if the feelings are heavy and hard and sad or frustrated or angry, allowing that to just be there, you know, it's that name it to tame it, acknowledge that it's there um, and allow that to be. Every, everything is temporary. Um, and when we can begin to kind of appreciate a moment for what it is, we appreciate parenting so much more. You know, my children, I now have one who's graduating high school and heading off to college. And I have a lot of friends really struggling with the fact that this is their senior year and they're, they're graduating, they're going to be leaving. And I, um, thankfully, I haven't felt that yet. I feel really excited that I have this time still left. And um, every moment is one that I cherish with him. You know, I know he's about to embark on his own journey and I'm, I'm excited for that because that's his journey. And I think that for me, mindfulness has allowed me presence of mind to really savor and appreciate those moments, big and small, um, and reflect on those when I need to and sit with those when I need to. And even, you know, with bigger challenges, I lost my father in June last year and sitting with that grief and that those hard, really awful feelings, um, mindfulness has really helped me be connected to myself, um, even though I might not necessarily feel connected. And it also provided me an avenue to just be with that and work through it instead of distracting myself with something else. And then eventually it just kind of comes up for you later. Um, but it's translated to parenting, you know, in ways that I really just, I appreciate every moment, even the ones that are challenging because I know they're fleeting. They're not gonna be here um, forever. And so I think that that's probably the biggest piece I take away from it with parenting. And just for me personally, it just allows me to be um, a lot more peaceful in my thoughts and a lot more compassionate when it comes to others, um, you know, because of that kind of observational awareness that you develop with mindfulness, whether it's through meditation or whether it's um, through an informal practice um, of movement or sensory applications. Um, I'm just able to enjoy more around me and, and have an appreciation for someone else's behavior I don't need to connect to. You know, they're struggling and they have a challenge. And if I can help, wonderful. And if I can't, then that's their journey that they need to um, navigate. And, uh, you know, I can choose to respond um, or not. And it's, it gives me that choice to do that. And that's, I think, probably the biggest piece for me that I take personally away from it. Great. Great. So I'm really curious, and I know you mentioned that you didn't expect yourself to be teaching mindfulness for parents and students, but how did you get into this? <laughs> yeah, that was very, um, very haphazard how, and very non-traditional. So I, my daughter's um, fourth grade class was experiencing a lot of behavioral issues in the classroom. And anyone who's a teacher and has, you know, 20 plus students in their classroom, I'm sure at some point in their career has experienced this, where you just have certain groups of kids that really struggle to get along um, and, and work well with one another. And I happened to also be a substitute teacher at the school at the time. And it really just kind of blew up. The kids were, um, the teachers didn't have the support. The kids were losing things like recess or certain games were not allowed to be played at recess. Um, they, you know, they were just not allowed to do certain things. Everything was just being taken away instead of kind of really kind of looking at what's happening here that we can work with. And I, I was in a unique position that I was the substitute at the school. I knew the teachers through that. And I also knew all the parents because my daughter was in the classroom. So I, I had an ear to both circumstances and the teachers were struggling just trying to get through the material they needed to teach and parents were struggling because their kids are coming home unhappy and complaining about all this periphery stuff that was happening that didn't even pertain to academics. Um, and so they knew that their children were unhappy and nobody seemed to know 
what to do. And so I became a sounding board for, for both sides because of the position I was in. And at the time I had a friend who was teaching mindfulness out in Oregon. And so I called her and I was kind of like, you know, wouldn't it be amazing at this point in time, mindfulness was not something that was mainstream or being brought into schools um, on a larger scale. And it really was a challenge to even have that conversation um, in, a, in a secular school setting in any way, shape or form. Um, and she was willing to come out and do a training. And I thought, oh, great. So I went to the school administrator and basically said, you know, I think this would be really helpful for these students thinking, you know, this was a right before April break. Um, and in my mind, I had this vision that they would um, bring her in and she would train them over the summer and the next school year would be a much better experience for everyone, teacher and student alike. And within the week, um, the school administrator came to me and said, whatever you can do now would be great. We're all for it. And so it really kind of blindsided me. I thankfully had this April vacation week to pull my stuff together and um, think about the issues that were coming up in this class and take the practice that I really had kind of set aside for myself, having, you know, I had a, a personal practice when I was pregnant of meditating 45 minutes every single day. That certainly is not something that was possible with two children in school and, um, and a job and everything else. So I had, I had basically taken my practice and restarted it. I started a daily meditation practice immediately for myself and kind of crafted a curriculum on the fly um, that I would go in and I had these two fourth grade classrooms that would be squished together. Um, and normally when I go into a classroom situation where I'm working with students, I'll work with them maybe 15 or 20 minutes at the most with a pretty short lesson um, once a week. And with this particular class, they just were so burned out and they were struggling and challenged so much um, just to get through their day even. I ended up in that classroom 45 minutes a day, five days a week for the remainder of the school year. And then I would also go in after school and just work with the teachers um, briefly to see you know, what came up for them, um, either while I was in there or just throughout the day. And we would kind of work on strategies that might help. And um, I remember, you know, you don't really know when you're going in to do this as an outside provider, you don't necessarily know how the kids are reacting to it. And I remember being at the field day, it was one of the last days of the school year and um, one little boy was just kind of really melting down and we went and got a snack together and um, he, he was just really struggling to be part of the field day and to participate with these other kids. And I said, is there anything that, you know, you've learned through mindfulness that might help in this situation or that has helped you now. And he kind of thought about it and he looked up at me and he said, it taught me to like myself. Oh, wow. I know. And I was like, holy cow, you know, for a 10 year old to be able to express that um, really blew me away. And, and it really was this ripple effect for every student there. I, I would love to say that they completely turned around and, and it was like these articles you read online that, Say, oh, we brought mindfulness into our school and we no longer have detention. I, I, it wasn't like that. Um, I'm one person, you know, so I, I can't have that kind of school-wide impact. But um, for this particular class and these group of kids, they really, um, they learned a lot about themselves and how to, how to begin to interact differently with one another. And the change even rippled into their family, um, which is why ultimately I, I kind of graduated into also teaching families and, and parents. Um, because I saw it was just organically and naturally happening. These students were going home and teaching their parents what they were doing in class and even kind of guiding them in ways that was really unexpected. I mean, I had a student who walked his older sister. He was a third grader. He had an eighth grade sister who had a diagnosed anxiety disorder and, and other physical challenges that she had. And he guided her through a full counting breath meditation that ended an anxiety attack in the car. Um, I had another a little girl who was a preschooler who guided her mom through a meditation when she had dumped her drink all over the front seat of her car and was using some not so nice words to use her term. Um, and she guided her through meditation. And, and I think that's the piece that really has been so humbling for me is to see children as young as three and four years old have tools and they're capable of learning them. And when they learn them, they learn not only to settle themselves, but they help their friends do it as well and their family and that's really what's been 
so incredible about this journey for me is just to be witness to that. Wow, that's a that's a beautiful story. Now, how long ago was that? That was, well, I have stories kind of every year that ripple into that, um, but that was my first and second years of teaching. Um, those were the two that really just kind of floored me. Um, it, it really, and the one story about the, the third grader kind of guiding his sister through, a, through an anxiety attack, those were parents that really were not fully on board with me coming into the classroom and teaching it initially. Um, so that was really affirming for me to hear that, you know, they saw the benefit firsthand. Um, and, you know, the mom actually said to me after that, she's like, you need to be in every school doing this work. <laughs> she said, that was just remarkable to see what he was doing. She said, I had no idea what he was doing. He's showing her to put her hands on her, on her body in a certain way. And, and he's counting her breath with her. She's like, I couldn't explain what happened. But by the time he had counted to 10, she was fine. And it's just, a, it's kind of a remarkable situation that way. When I go into classrooms, when I do work with youth, and even when I work with adults, I'm really careful to invite them to try. And the only thing I ask of anyone is that you come with a curious mind and a willingness to try it. And, you know, some things might work one day and might not be so successful the next. Um, and some things might consistently work for you, but it's that idea of practicing and always returning is really the piece where you're mindful. And, and when you're trying meditation in, in particular, which is a part of mindfulness, but not the entirety of mindfulness, um, when you're practicing that meditative piece and you're struggling to keep your thoughts because your mind wants to go everywhere, but right here and right now, it wants to plan for something later. It wants to ruminate about something that happened earlier. And where mindfulness happens isn't so much when you can keep your attention to this one moment. You know, that would be amazing if we had that kind of focus and attention. But unless you live in a monastery, that's really challenging to do. The beauty in my mind of mindfulness is that it's in the returning of your attention that creates a, an actual synapse in your brain um, that helps you balance your nervous system and, and helps you kind of come back to a state of balance and calm for yourself. So when your mind wanders and you catch it wandering and you return it to what's happening now, that is really when mindfulness is at work um, and in very physiological ways in the brain. I love that. And, you know, it's, it speaks to the mom who pointed out the fact that, you know, this should be in every school. I mean, it truly should be in every school. I mean, we, we know that mindfulness has a profound impact on, on our brain. And could you talk a little bit more about that and in how it works or why it works? Yeah, so I typically will use some visual aids when I go into any classroom and I'm very well known for my glitter jars. Um, but I will use a glitter jar as a really great example of kind of what's going on in the mind just in general. So when you wake up in the morning and you're feeling fairly clear-minded and your thoughts are pretty clear, you know, that about, for adults, it's about three seconds before the mind starts spinning with a list of things to do. But if you imagine kind of that glitter jar with all the glitter settled at the very bottom of the jar, that is when our prefrontal cortex, that thinking part of our brain is fully engaged. We're able to make good choices. We're able to make decisions. We're regulating our emotions really well. But as the day goes on and stress begins to build and we start to create that list of things that we need to do or that we forgot to do and all of these stressors and big emotions begin to start to fill up our mind, I'll shake that glitter jar up. And what happens is this kind of dust bowl of glitter is swirling in this jar, right? And you can no longer see clearly. Your prefrontal cortex is no longer engaged. That part of your mind, that part of your brain that is able to help you um, regulate your emotions, make good decisions, think clearly, is no longer engaged. And at that point, it, you're just in kind of fight or flight mode, right? You're highly emotional, you're reactive, and you're not gonna make a good decision in that space. But what happens is if I set that glitter jar onto a table and I let it sit there for a moment, a little space will be created where it becomes clear as that glitter starts to settle. So that glitter, those thoughts, those feelings, those stressors don't leave, they don't go anywhere, but you've created a space in just being still for a moment 
that you can re-engage the part of your brain that's able to learn, able to think, able to regulate yourself again. Um, and the more that you're able to do that, more you're able to return it to that kind of present moment of I'm right here and right now, the more space is created. So that's kind of what I use as my visual for that. But how it works in the brain, there's three um, parts of the brain that are, are most directly impacted by mindfulness. They're, they're probably the three parts of the brain that you'll hear about the most in correlation with mindfulness. And I say this under the guise that, you know, brain research is developing very rapidly and very quickly. So I don't want to quote this as the be all end all, but what we know right now, this is kind of uh, the impact that mindfulness has. So if you look at the brain as though um, you're looking at the base, the midbrain, and the top brain. So the base of the brain is that very primitive region, right? It's where the amygdala sits, and that amygdala is responsible for your fight, flight, or freeze response. So if, if you go to touch a hot stove and your hand just pulls away, you're not sitting with your hand on a hot burner thinking, boy, this is really hot. I should probably take my hand off of it. Your body just reacts to keep you safe and to protect you. So it's a really important part of the brain. That mid-level part of the brain is, is home to the um, hippocampus, which is primarily responsible for memory storage and emotion. And that piece is also impacted by mindfulness, which I'll tell you in a minute. And then we'll move up to kind of that top level brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, which sits right kind of behind your forehead. Um, and that's executive function, thinking, regulation, um, decision-making. And when you are able to allow that glitter to settle for a moment, when you set it down on the table, when you think about just what's happening right here and right now, whether that is you're noticing your breath and you're counting that for a moment, um, you're noticing how something feels in your hand, you're paying attention to something that you see visually, you're really savoring a certain smell or taste, those are ways <clears throat> when we bring our attention to that one thing at a time and our full attention is absorbed in it, you're engaging all three parts of that, all three of those components of the brain at one time. And that's creating some balance for your nervous system. So that's how mindfulness works physiologically in the brain. It, it literally is con connecting parts of the brain that help you regulate yourself, help you regulate your emotions, help you think more critically and make make decisions and respond to stimuli instead of react to stimuli. Um, you know, what's interesting about that as well is there are components around us that can trigger that amygdala response. And so if we are using too much of one area of the brain, it gets larger and the other parts of the brain can begin to atrophy. So that's really the problem where in our kind of culture and our society now, we are frequently triggering that amygdala, that fight, flight, or freeze response, because to the brain, stress is stress. So for a student, you know, whether they're being chased by a wild dog or they're sitting in front of um, their desk and preparing to take a test, or maybe you have a family or a member coming over or a friend that this child hasn't met before and there's nervousness about that, it's lighting up that same area of the brain. So it doesn't determine the, the component of stress isn't kind of its own little category um, and the brain adjusts to that, it doesn't. It just sees stress as stress and the body responds um, in, in really challenging ways that aren't healthy for um, the rest of our body. You know, when you have a stress response, your stomach might feel a little bit nauseous. Well, that's because your digestive system is going offline because it's routing all information to your extremities because you might need to fight, you might need to flee, um, you might need to faint or freeze. And so it's rerouting information. So your heart rate might speed up. You might feel really energized in, in your legs or your arms as you prepare to run or fight. You know, you, you might see behaviors in your child as this happens or, or a student um, in the classroom where they're frequently tapping the table or they have to go to the bathroom frequently. Um, maybe their homework's not getting done regularly because there's stress at home that's not allowing them to just sit and pay attention at something. So there are behaviors that kind of manifest as a result and they become chronic. And if that stress becomes chronic, it really, as you can imagine, puts quite a toll on major organs like your heart, your circulatory system, which then wears down their immune system as well. Um, so that's kind of, I know hopefully that wasn't too much for you, but the physiology of, of what mindfulness does is it kind of reduces that, that effect 
Um, it's foundational, however, so the time to introduce it is not when they're in that fight, flight, or freeze response. It really is foundational in that the best time to introduce mindfulness is when they're pretty calm and agreeable and they're willing to try it because they're less likely to get to that stress response um, because of that practice. Because in the brain, a synapse is created. And so the more you repeat that, um, that mindful moment, um, the stronger and thicker um, that synapse becomes and the more easily information travels to the prefrontal cortex. So you're aligning your nervous system more repeatedly, which creates a stronger connection than that stress response is. I hope that makes some sense. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I was so glad that you provided that education on it because I think a lot of folks, you know, are maybe shy away from mindfulness because one, they don't know a lot about it, or maybe it seems a little too hokey for them, but there is a lot of research there. And I just think it's so amazing that in the school systems and less so in mental health treatment, but that we're so quick to, you know, look at ADHD medication or, you know, some forms of, of maybe punishment or discipline versus looking at, well, how can we support this child? How can we give them the tools to help them self-regulate and and yet become more calm and be able to concentrate? So it would be so wonderful if we could have it in all the schools. It would be just amazing. I know. I know. One day, I think that we will. I, I think the reality is we're slow to kind of understand the need for it and and understand the science behind it and and that there is an actual you know learning component that would be so much more improved you know a child that's in a state of stress like i said their prefrontal cortex is offline other parts of their body are going offline can you imagine trying to be able to focus on learning in that state of mind it's 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 impossible um, learning just can't happen in that space. But when you can prime the brain and prepare it to learn what's next, you know, then it doesn't take a lot of time. It, and I think that's the other piece that's really challenging for schools and, and teachers. And, and I think even parents, you know, parents don't need one more thing added to their list as much as a teacher doesn't need one more thing added to their day. Um, but the reality is these skill sets can be integrated in the moment. And that's really when they become most sustainable and most helpful, um, whether it's for you or um, your classroom or your child. Yeah, that, that's great. And that actually leads me to my next question, which is, you know, we live in this, like you said, this very chaotic world right now. There's a hundred things that we all need to do. So how would you recommend parents practice mindfulness day to day when the world around them is never really calm or quiet? Yeah. I mean, when parents come to me, it, my classes are really based on putting your oxygen mask on first as a parent. Um, because if you're not taking care of yourself, it's really hard for you to be able to take care of your child. And I know we all hear that. And, and, and I will be the first to say, I don't necessarily listen to my self-care needs either. Um, but it really is a critical component to it. And I, and I think that when I have um, parents come to my classes and I'm asking them to just try, try the meditation, fit in five minutes, fit in three minutes, fit in 10 breaths, if that's all you have, um, that meditation piece, carving that out is next to impossible for many. Um, people either love it and it really resonates for them or they are very resistant and uncomfortable with the fact that their mind is always moving and they feel like they need to keep it still. And so one of the things that I will say to parents is don't go into any type of meditation with the expectation that your mind is going to be completely still. It is not wired for that. And what you're doing is literally just changing kind of the thought process of observing the thoughts, recognizing they're moving around and just returning to either counting your breath, which is just an in-breath and an out-breath, and that's one, and another in-breath and an out-breath, and that's two. Um, noticing quiet sounds around you and really trying to identify that and just hold that sound for a few seconds and, and take an interest in it and a curiosity for it. Um, before you get, um, you know, before you start your car in the morning, just hold onto the steering wheel. Notice how that feels in that moment. You know, is it smooth? Is it cold? 
Um, does it feel comfortable in your hands or not? Um, take five breaths at a stoplight. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be 15 minutes of time that you carve out to do meditation. It can be very informal. And every time you bring your attention to something that's happening right here and right now is creating that connection that I talked about earlier in the brain where it, it is helping you strengthen that space that keeps your nervous system a little more balanced and helps you, you know, keep your, keep your cool a little bit better. You know, when we're racing in the car, we sometimes many of us become very different people behind the wheel of a car. And so when we're running late, you know, we're more easily triggered and set off in that stress response. And then just being with that and recognizing that I'm really stressed right now, I'm running late and saying that to yourself, even that can be enough of a pause because you are bringing your attention to how you feel right in that moment. And that's mindful. Um, so again, it doesn't need to be this kind of created time for yourself. Um, it, it would be lovely. You certainly deserve it as a parent to have that time that's just for you, even if it's just five minutes to do a meditation, whether it's guided through an app um, or you're guiding yourself through it, or you, you have a coach that does um, kind of a meditation guiding process, then that's amazing. If you have the ability and, and um, the time that you're willing to set aside to do that. Um, but like I said, it doesn't necessarily have to be that. Um, you can do it in the moment. You can bring your awareness um, to anything that's happening in a given moment. Sounds, smells, something that you see, something you feel, um, all of those things are, are mindful when we bring our attention to just that one thing in this one moment. That's great. I am definitely going to practice the five breaths at a stoplight because <laughs> I, something happens, but when you get behind the wheel of a car, I don't know. I change. I know I, so if I'm in a rush, I right. change into a totally different person. Oh yeah. Language changes. It's like this alter ego comes out for many of us, you know, it, that happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, do you have any recommendations for apps that, that you like or would recommend? I personally love the Calm app. Um, I just think they have a variety of options there and they have options that can guide your children through meditation as well as an adult. And they have apps, um, they have meditations that help you sleep. They have meditations that help you deal with anxiety. They have meditations that help you um, deal with stress. So they have a variety of ones that you can do and they do offer a free um, option that you can try it out. So that's probably my go-to and my most favorite um, for that reason. I, I, I'm drawn to that one. There are others um, that, that can be equally helpful and I think you kind of find you know, what works for you. Um, that's probably my favorite um, personally. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I can say about, about that. I know that there's, um, there's Headspace, there's Smiling Mind, there's a few others out there. They're always kind of coming up with new ones and you kind of find which one sounds good to you. Like I said, mindfulness in the beginning, it's, it's your own personal journey. So where one might work really well for me, it might not work really well for someone else. Um, for teachers, I will say the Calm app offers a free, um, a free subscription for any teacher. Um, you just have to go onto their website and register. So it's a really lovely, easy way to kind of integrate it into your classroom day um, if you want. Oh, very cool. My husband's a teacher, so I'll definitely have to let him know that. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And I know Go Noodle as well has some lovely kind of mindful practices. And I think, I think they have some meditations as well. And I know that's used as a pretty um, standard tool in most classrooms. Great. Great. So that sort of leads me again to this next question. And this is a topic that I've been getting a lot of questions on from parents, a lot of parents struggling with this, and that's screen time. It's so what I'm finding is parents are trying to figure out how to limit it. And I know you've done a lot of research and reading on this topic in regards to how screen time impacts the brain. Can you share a little bit about what you know and how you approach screen time with your own kids and the parents that you work with? Yeah, screen time's a tough one. Um, the technology evolved before we really understood what it was doing um, 
to our brains and our development. And so now I, I think that we're all trying to play catch up and, and figure it out. And the reality is with technology, and that could be a phone, it could be a tablet, it could be a computer screen, it could be a TV, it has all really changed in just the span of, I would say, not even a generation. You know, if you think of the introduction to Mr. Rogers and you imagine kind of what he looked like entering the screen and he would take his jacket off as he very slowly walked down the stairs and then he would hang his jacket up and then slowly take his sweater out and put one sleeve on at a time all while singing this very lovely sweet song we would lose attention watching that within about 2.5 seconds at this point it just doesn't hold our attention any longer because now you you want to think about um the introduction to spongebob squarepants and the difference that's making there's colors moving there's movement happening all over there's bubbles flying and so anytime that there is a shift in um, your visual cue whether that's a camera angle whether that's information that's scrolling along the bottom of the um, screen there could be something else happening in the corner, even like a news show where you have the anchor person sitting there, there's information scrolling along the bottom, there might be a video going on in the corner. All of that is stimulating our fight, flight, or freeze response. So it's activating that part of our brain that creates a stress response for our bodies and our brain. And our prefrontal cortex goes offline. So the problem now becomes the scrolling nature of a phone or a tablet does that same thing it's that movement and you know it's no longer just the the blue light it's also the movement um, is creating that oh you know the prefrontal cortex is like oh do I need to respond to this and the amygdala is like oh, hold on you might need to react I got this and so it shuts down that part of our brain and the amygdala gets larger and so now we're seeing more instances of reactive behaviors where we weren't seeing that previously um, now, I will also say that technology is not the only reason that we're seeing higher instances of anxiety and stress, certainly among youth. You know, they're getting less sleep. Um, the schedules are far bigger than they ever were in previous generations. There's always an activity we're running to. You have two parents typically working. So everything's happening a little bit later and a little more of a shuffle and a faster pace than it was in generations previous. So all of these things are contributing to this very intense response. And when you have a child that's developing and their brain is developing, it becomes incredibly challenging. So if we look at you know, younger children where their brain is rapidly developing and it's developing from the base up. So they are trying to make these connections of emotional regulation, of understanding the world around them. And the brain is really rapidly learning and adapting to everything that's happening it's creating networks and habits for really young people that mean things always have to be moving and when they're not moving they become very uncomfortable and that discomfort is when that anxiety kicks in i don't know what to do with this i don't know what to do with boredom i always have something that can keep me occupied and the brain gets nervous well i'm supposed to have a job i don't have a job i don't have anything to look at what am i going to do and so that's kind of where that manifests. Now, if we prolong that or we begin it later in middle and, and, and high school, once they reach an adolescent state of development, a whole other shift is happening in the brain because now we're pruning away things that we don't use regularly and the stuff that we are doing on a consistent basis at that age is getting stronger and faster and more ingrained as a habit. So think about that technology use for both a developing brain and then a brain that's kind of establishing its adulthood. It's shifting how the brain develops entirely. So learning has completely shifted. When the brain knows that information is a Google click away, it doesn't retain the information. So how do we educate kids differently? How do we parent them knowing that all of this is kind of happening with their brain? You know, it's a big challenge when I tell parents or even when I tell my teenagers, I want you to turn your screens off two hours before you go to bed. And they look at me like a deer in headlights. <laughs> like, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> and parents, you know, can't always do that. And as adults, we're modeling technology use for them. Um, so our restraint from it is probably the best counter to that. Um, and also really encouraging them to take a break from that screen not allowing it in the really early stages of life is is really important if you can do that um, i'm not going to judge anybody who's you know out with a, a screen in front of their child 
we just don't, you know, we're just learning the impacts that this technology has on them. But again, look at the whole picture. You know, what is your schedule like day to day? Are they getting enough sleep? What's their nutrition like? Are they, you know, let's be mindful of that whole space that they're growing up in. And are we creating um, more stress and anxiety in just kind of how we function day to day? Is the technology piece contributing to a component of that? And how can we adjust that um, both for ourselves and, and for our children? And how do we adapt, you know, systemically? How do we adapt education to teach children in a different way so that they do learn and remember the information they're being taught? Because they're not right now. It's, it's a very different um, world that these kids are learning and, and developing and, and growing into. So a lot of things need to begin to shift to adapt to that. Um, you know, the piece that I'm frequently asked, particularly with teenagers, because we hear frequently about how they're addicted to technology. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that piece. I think certainly for some, absolutely, um, some of the stories that I'm, I'm told about um, people's teenagers. But the reality is when I'm asked the question of should we take phones away from kids that are in high school? Should we just, you know, should they not have them on campus at all? And, and surprisingly, I will say no, you know, it's our role as educators, it's our role as parents to teach them how to use this technology in a mindful, purposeful, intentional way. And that's just my opinion. I, you know, I'm not going to offer science to support that. But I think that what I see is the reality is these kids, you know, I have a kid that's graduating high school and he's going to be off in college and on his own. And I will not have the space to manage his screen time at that point. So have I done my job as a parent um, in teaching him how to use it intentionally and when to recognize he's using it to distract himself? And that's all I can hope for is that I have given him those, those tools to recognize, you know, yeah, I'm using it to distract myself and I need to put it away and, and turn it off. And, you know, have I have his teachers helped in the time management process? You know, all of that is, it's a community effort in kind of navigating and managing that. And, um, and I think we do have a role as parents and educators to notice um, and to help these kids notice when are they using it for a purpose, for intentional work, and when are they using it to watch 45 minutes of cute cat videos? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but they're so cute. <laughs> they're so cute. Or, you know, they're on social media and they're Snapchatting and they're doing other things. But it, you know... The recognition, um, you know, and that, that's the mindful kind of piece of technology use um, that I try to help people understand is that recognition when you're using it as a distraction versus when you're using it for a purpose. So you don't go down that road of, oh my gosh, an hour's gone by and I've got nothing accomplished. And then, that, then the stress sets in, right? Because you have all this work to do and you've blown it off to get sucked into something that really wasn't helpful. Right. It's, it's so true, though. I, I heard of, about a student recently whose phone was taken away, middle school stu student, and the student then went and got her own phone without her parents knowing. And for wow. a month, this child had this phone without them knowing. And so kids are resourceful. And Very. so if, like you said, if we can teach them responsible ways and mindful ways of using it, I think that's really where the solution is. Yeah. And I think we need to educate, you know, parents and teachers on what is actually happening in the brain when they're using it. And I think that knowledge is really powerful because it does change how you perceive it. If I know that my child from watching that screen is going to have some developmental issues, mental or emotional health issues as a result of that, that changes how I'm, I'm going to manage that for, for my child and, and the rules I'm going to put around that. Right, right. So how, how do you limit it with your own kids? <laughs> it is the never-ending battle. It sounds really good when I'm saying it at a, at a talk, you know, like I, I know what I'm doing, but the, but the reality is hard. Like it's, the struggle is real. Um, it is very enticing and they don't want to be off of it. For one child, it is her social connection to the world. Um, and for my other, it's more videos. Um, so they have two very different purposes that they get sucked into using it for. And what I will frequently kind of say to them is, are you using it to distract yourself? Are you using it to communicate? Or are you using it for a purpose of getting some work done? Um, if it's time to really buckle down and get some homework done, 
then they will kind of look at me and, and realize, oh, I've been sucked into this and I can't. Um, I do set limits on time. Um, and I do try to always, you know, the phones don't go into the upstairs of our house. They're always um, downstairs. They will sneak them up all the time. It is the never ending battle of them. I'm always kind of policing it. It is a constant battle, um, but it's, you know, I try to be as consistent as possible, as does my husband. We're both on the same page. We're trying not to use it. Um, you know, we don't use it at the dinner table. We don't use it when we go out to eat. We don't use it in social situations and our phones, everybody's phone gets put on the kitchen counter at the end of the day. And they're pretty good about that. They know, um, we, you know, it's been established for long enough that they know I mean business when I say, you know, it's time to put the, put the phone on the counter. If they disagree, I'll just say, would you like me to bring it for you? Or can you do that? And that usually is, oh, right. Okay. It's time. <laughs> um, but I try to, to end it at least an hour before they go to bed, if not two hours, because what happens is the brain takes a while to um, get back online after they've had it. So they will fall asleep, but they won't have a restful sleep because the brain is still processing all that information um, while they're sleeping. So that delays the development of the brain in that case. So um, that's why we used to see kind of adolescent brain development wrapping up in the early 20s. It's now in the mid 20s. Um, for that reason, partly um, is because they are, it is shifting how the brain develops. So that's kind of my tactic. Um, it's a lot of Jedi mind tricks and, and just really reinforcement and and kind of consistency of practice and just saying, look guys, if the phone stays down here, please bring it back down. I don't want it in your room. You know, anything that you have to use it for can be done, you know, in the dining room, the living room. We have two different living rooms so they can use either one of those. Um, it can be done in a public space and, um, you know, by a certain time of the night, it goes on on the counter and put on do not disturb so it's not dinging. Cause that ding is like Pavlov, you know. <laughs> They turn to it every time. Oh my gosh, I must, I must respond to that. So um, I'm thankful my kids really respond to that and they recognize that they do feel better. Um, and we've done experiments where we've gone like for a week with no screen at all, um, just so they can see the difference for themselves. And they, they both have said, I feel different when, I'm, when I don't have it at all. I feel better when I don't have it. That's great. I'm definitely going to start using that for myself of sort of recognizing when I'm using my phone or when I'm going to my phone. I know with my own kids, if it's, if they're, you know, doing something calmly, I have a tendency to, you know, distract myself with it. Or I notice with my husband, if the kids are kind of off the wall, he has a tendency to use the phone to distract himself. So yeah. I think, you know, incorporating that for ourselves will be super helpful in modeling for when the time comes and we have to manage that. Hopefully it will be a very long time. Yeah. I mean, especially for, you know, once they become teenagers and they hit that adolescent state of development, which really doesn't necessarily happen at 13, you know, it sometimes happens at 10 or 11. It sometimes happens, you know, later on at 14, but generally speaking, once that adolescent, you know, stage of brain development happens, that's when they're more inclined to develop addictive, addictive behaviors. And so if you can kind of manage that more successfully beforehand um, and then continue those habits through adolescence and you really have to reinforce them because they want to push every button and test every rule and regulation that you've put out um, and that's just part of them exerting independence it's just the natural progression of their development and they should be doing it um, it you know I, I frankly love the teenage years that middle school to high school years I love the pushing back and the challenging for that reason, they're asserting themselves, but um, it really is a time of highly addictive behaviors um, start happening in that, in that space because of how the brain is working. So if you can kind of manage it and navigate and establish some consistency of rules before then, it really is helpful longer term um, for them. And then it's just once they hit the teenage years, it's really about just keeping consistent with that rule, um, regardless of the fact that they will argue better than most attorneys. <laughs> <At point. laughs> yes. So um, this has been awesome. So I, but what I want to hear from you is do you have any parent, a parenting win moment that you can share with our listeners that happened either, either with your own kids or uh, the students that you work with? 
Yeah. So, you know, the irony is when your mom is the mindfulness teacher, it's really challenging because especially when I'm going into their classrooms, um, it's, you know, I, I'm sure that they're kind of like, oh God, here comes my mom again. So that's, that was a real challenge for them when I first started doing this work because it wasn't something that was well accepted when I started doing this in 2014. Um, and I will say that I got a lot of heat from them about it. They joked with me about it. They teased me about it. And it became kind of this funny little banter that we would have among ourselves as a family and in the house. And I remember one day my daughter being particularly exhausted and supercharged about something. I, right now, I can't remember what it was, but she was just off the charts, unhappy, angry, frustrated, and the world was going to know about it. And you know, she just was not in a space where she could regulate. And, and we were in the car and driving home and she was just going on, you know, it was just kind of this download of everything that was in her brain was just coming out. And thankfully, both my husband and I were able to stay really calm and kind of understanding. And she was like, don't use that mindfulness on me, mom. And she's arguing with me, trying to get me to meet her energy, right? Um, and thankfully, I was able to stay pretty, pretty composed in that space because I knew she just was struggling um, with working through whatever she had to work through. And by the time we got home, she ran up the stairs, went into her bedroom, slammed the door, um, mad as a hornet. And then I didn't hear anything for a while. And I gave her a few minutes to kind of settle. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll just go in and just check on her and see how she's doing. And I knocked on the door and I don't hear anything and I, and I walked in and she's laying on her bed in meditation, listening to this spa-like chakra music. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, it worked. <laughs> she took in what I've been teaching all along, but she would never admit to. Um, so that was like my first kind of, oh my gosh, like they, she took it. She took it and she used it for herself. And I was so excited for her in that moment. Um, and that I knew that I had actually gotten through in some way, despite all the bantering and the teasing and the joking that we have as a family about, about doing this work. Um, it had gotten through and she saw it as a really helpful tool. And she actually has led meditation in her own classrooms since then. So um, yeah, that's my success story. I'm super excited for her about I, I love that. And it, it reminds me of a few weeks ago, my daughter was having a hard time. And we, we've talked a lot about, you know, belly breathing and blowing out the birthday candles. And she was, she was super resistant one day. She was, you know, fighting it, didn't want to, didn't want to use the belly breaths. And so I was just doing it to sort of model it. And I, I look over and she's, she's like breathing out of one corner of her mouth. Like, like she, she, she wanted to do it, but didn't want to do it at the same time. Right. Right. Cause mom's doing it. And I don't, right. I don't want her to be right. 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 <laughs> Even at three and a half, they're, they're smart. Yeah. Oh, they are very smart. They're yeah. smart at every stage. I'll tell you, but yeah, I mean, it's amazing to see them kind of take that on and and no, even though they resist it, they know it's helpful. And, you know, if I do nothing else, at least I've given her that tool. That's great. That's great. So I know this has been like super helpful and I'm sure folks are going to want to hear more from you. So where can folks find you? I am based in Scarborough, Maine. Um, I teach classes, um, in schools kind of throughout Maine, um, not just in Scar, I don't actually teach in Scarborough schools, um, but throughout Portland and Southern Maine, um, I have worked uh, in classrooms and uh, with teachers just doing professional development as well in those spaces. But I have a space in Scarborough that I use um, to teach classes in the community, both parenting classes and just basic mindfulness classes for people who really just want those skills for themselves. Um, and a mindfulness, mindful parenting class. And I'm doing workshops this year, which I haven't done before, which is kind of taking kind of a one week class that I would normally do and um, expanding it to just an hour and a half workshop. So it gets really deep into that particular topic. So I have a, a parenting the anxious child coming up next week, um, along with an everyday mindfulness workshop, and then and also a positive discipline workshop. And I'll have more coming up and retreats as well coming up 
that I haven't gotten on the schedule yet, but um, I will be. So I'm also expanding into a space in Kennebunkport um, in the coming weeks or month or so, once I have that worked out um, to offer classes and workshops um, and probably some mini retreats in that space as well. So that's where I'm located, my website. Um, you can find all that information there is called mindfulnessinme.com. Um, and all of my classes and upcoming um, workshops and anything there is, it can be located there, as well as any contact information. You can subscribe to my newsletter. I send a, a monthly newsletter out um, as well that gives you kind of a tip for yourself on how to stay mindful in the moment um, and also kind of gives you an update on upcoming classes or workshops that I'm offering and any other news or blog posts that I've um, put out there. Great. Well, wonderful. I'm definitely going to be subscribing. So oh. thank, you. <laughs> thank you so much for, for joining us today and I hope you have a great day. Oh, thanks so much, Lisa. You too. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me in my conversation with Bethany. I know I really walked away just feeling more positive since my talk with her, and I really have tried to make mindfulness more a part of my day-to-day, -day. and I have to say, it's really helping. So thank you again for joining me, and if you liked what you, what you heard, please leave a review on your podcast player. Also, keep sending me your ideas and recommendations. I love feedback. So have a great rest of your week, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.